This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements, so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com cbs presents america changed forever with cbs news correspondent jeff pegues thanks for being with us this week the ag the attorney general testified before the senate judiciary committee the hearing was heated at times which of course was not unexpected Attorney General Merrick Garland was accused of running an overly politicized Department of Justice. This is Texas Senator Ted Cruz, a Republican. Let me start with a simple question. General Garland, is it a federal crime to protest outside of a judge's home with the intent of influencing that judge as to a pending case? Uh, The answer to that is yes, but I also want to at least respond to your characterization of the department, which I vigorously disagree with. I believe the men and women of the department pursue their work every single day in a nonpartisan and appropriate way. General Garland, there are thousands of men and women who do that. And I'll tell you, I hear from prosecutors at the Department of Justice. I hear from agents at the FBI who are angry that it is treated 
as the enforcement arm for the DNC instead of upholding the law in a fair and even-handed manner. So you are right. There are thousands of men and women that are, that are doing the job, but it is the political leadership that you're responsible for. So in the big picture, we're not going to remember this hearing whatsoever. It's going to fade into the background of most relatively uneventful hearings on Capitol Hill where politicians, frankly, like to get FaceTime so that their constituents can see them on television making a big stink but actually not changing a thing. The real story with Garland's testimony, well, it was what he couldn't or didn't discuss. All of the investigation swirling around Donald Trump. Investigation swirling around the classified documents cases involving Joe Biden, Mike Pence, and Donald Trump. And, of course, the investigation into Hunter Biden. So today, an interview with the DOJ's former top spokesperson. He recently left the Department of Justice where he worked closely and, frankly, almost around the clock with Merrick Garland. Given his proximity to Merrick Garland, he has what I think is a unique perspective on the AG and how this particular Department of Justice is operating. Anthony Coley, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jeff, for inviting me. Glad to be here with you today. All right. How, how do you think the Attorney General held up under tough questioning before the Senate Judiciary Committee? Yeah, well, I will tell you, I think the attorney general went into today's hearing trying to uh, rise above the noise. He had a very clear and simple message, which is to reiterate his commitment to doing justice. That is doing the right thing, the right reason, uh, the right way um, over and over again without the uh, without the influence of politics. The other thing that we heard him say, Jeff, and, and talk about, and I was really glad to, to, to hear him spend a little bit of time talking about the rule of law and what it means to him. For him, the rule of law is not some lawyer's turn of a phrase. It's not an abstract jumble of words. For him, and he talked about this today, for him, the rule of law is a foundational element of our democracy. And it means quite simply, treating like cases alike, making sure that there is not one rule for Democrats and another rule for Republicans, making sure that the rich and powerful uh, uh, abide by the same set of rules that uh, those without um, that type of wealth or power. And importantly, what I heard him say today was focusing on the fact that he is putting in place people and processes to make sure that the rule of law and is corollary equal justice under law is reinfused throughout the entire uh, continuum um, of, of main justice. So from its law enforcement components and its litigating, litigating divisions, uh, and also the 94 U.S. attorney offices across the country. So I think Merrick Garland uh, went into today's hearing with a simple objective to reiterate his commitment to uh, to doing justice, doing the right thing, the right way for the right reason. And I think he came out of that uh, with his objective accomplished. Well, that's your take. Uh, and I say that because you heard a lot of Republicans in the hearing uh, question uh, his 
the way he's running the Department of Justice. In other words, saying, uh, you had some saying, we have never seen the Department of Justice politicized in the way that it is now. How do you react to that? So here's uh, people are entitled to their own opinion. They are not entitled to their own set of facts. And the facts of the matter is that in the prior four years, in the previous administration, there was an attorney general, uh, two of them, in fact, uh, who in many ways acted like uh, President Trump's personal attorney. Uh, Merrick Garland has done the exact opposite. He is guided by the facts and the law and nothing else. And he set up a series of um, processes and norms to make sure that that is reinfused throughout the department. I'll give you um, a data point um, about early on in his tenure, he um, put in place a, a very stringent White House contacts policy. Now, the prior administration had a White House contacts policy, uh, a weaker one, and they didn't even abide by that. Uh, because we know, based on Jeff, CBS News reporting and other reporting, that then-President Trump would repeatedly let his views be known on the uh, expected outcomes that he wanted in certain criminal matters. But what this uh, attorney general has done effectively, I would argue, uh, is say, you know what, we're going to have the strictest policy uh, that this department has ever seen to ensure that um, criminal matters uh, are only guided by the facts and the law and without even a hint of political influence. But to, to, again, to, to your, your point, in your recollection, was the attorney general ever in the White House, the Oval Office, discover, uh, discussing cases with the president or his staff? What uh, what you will see and what CBS News has covered, there's been a number of public events over the course of the last two years where uh, senior administration officials, myself included, uh, has been at the White House for uh, policy announcements, uh, for example. Uh, I remember, I think the last time I was at the White House is when uh, the president awarded uh, a number of law enforcement individuals with um, a medal of honor, or medal of courage, something of that nature. Uh, so on non-criminal matters, uh, the White House contacts policy uh, provides uh, an opportunity for uh, more uh, closer type of uh, contact that would happen in, in criminal matters. And I would also point out that the Justice Department is a part of the uh, administration. Um, on, I think it's March 9th, just next week, the president will put his budget forth in front of Congress. That includes funding for the Justice Department. That includes uh, funding for historic funding, I hope, for, again, for the community-oriented police, policing program, for example. Uh, it includes, uh, will include uh, further funding to battle the uh, fentanyl crisis uh, that's plaguing American communities. So, uh, so there, there, there are. Um, this Justice Department is, of course, a part of the bro broader Biden administration, but uh, it does not. And it, uh, under Merrick Garland, I don't believe uh, there will ever be any type of uh, communication on criminal matters, and that's appropriate. Is it difficult to keep politics out 
of the Department of Justice? So here's so I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to to answer that question. Um, after Watergate, there were a series of form, reforms that uh, Ben Civiletti, Ed Levy, and others uh, instituted. Uh, the principles of federal prosecution now, for instance, came out of that process. That is now, uh, as you well know, Jeff, um, one of the Bibles within the Justice Department. So over the past 50 years post-Watergate, there, there have been a set of norms and practices um, that people who grew up professionally in, in the department and even political appointees of both parties who came back to serve under different administrations knew what those policies and priorities and knew what those norms were. Uh, it was just in the four years of the Trump administration where uh, I would argue that the uh, that norm, I would argue that there was a departure, if you will, from from those norms. I mean, I remember a time, and I, Jeff, I, I remember you and others uh, covering this when uh, then President Trump um, wanted uh, specific uh, prosecutions uh, or sentences reduced for uh, certain um, defendants. And that's not appropriate for any president to weigh in. Of course, uh, he or she has um, the uh, power to commute sen sentences, um, but uh, weighing in, um, uh, before uh, a process is over, a uh, judicial process is over, that's out of the norms. I know you can't discuss the specifics of cases, but when it comes to the classified documents cases, whether it's the one involving former President Trump, current President Biden, former Vice President Pence, part of your job at DOJ was shaping the message. How complicated? Let me put it this way. How much of a nightmare did those cases become? So let me tell you, right, it's not, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to talk about any of these ongoing investigations. What I will say is that I have full confidence in the integrity of the process. Um, I've had uh, at the start of their tenure, ahead of the start of their tenure, um, I had uh, brief conversations with both of these special counsels, and I have full confidence that uh, they're going to do what they said they were going to do in terms of following the facts and the law uh, and the principles of federal prosecution without regard to political influence. So I have complete uh, confidence uh, into in, in the process. And I want to give them space to, to do that without my uh, giving them some uh, armchair quarterbacking from, from the sidelines. How, how much input did you have in terms of who was chosen for the job? Did you Were you given a stack of bios and you had to go through them to see if there were any red flags that the, the media would pick up? How much involvement did you have in that? I appreciate you uh, giving me that much uh, power and authority uh, at the Justice Department. This is a decision that the uh, Attorney General uh, made, uh, and he made it based on uh, the input uh, from some of the individuals that uh, know both uh, Rob Herr and Jack Smith well. I was, of course, uh, involved in the, the rollout uh, when it came time for the rollout and was responsible for the rollout of those uh, two uh, individuals. Uh, and, um, and again, I have uh, full faith and integrity that uh, the, the, 
the process that the attorney general put in place that he was forced to put in place, um, I would say here that uh, based on department regs, the department's view and my view, even now outside of the department, is that he didn't have much of a choice in either one of these two uh, investigations than to, but to uh, appoint a special counsel. I think these are fair to say that these are indeed extraordinary circumstances, uh, he said from the seventh floor uh, podium when announcing both of these, where you have a former president uh, who is announced that he intends to run, that he will run for president again. And then you have the current president, which is uh, uh, arguably the arguably be said is the current attorney general's um, boss. So I think uh, this was Merrick Garland uh, making sure that the public had faith in the process. He once said, Jeff, uh, in towards the end of his first confirmation hearing, it's not just enough for us to do justice, but we have to appear to do justice. And the people have to believe that we're doing justice. And I think his appointments in both of these matters, special counsel appointments in both of these matters, um, is proof of that stated commitment. Do justice in this classified or in these classified documents cases already. We have seen this repeated line of attack from Republicans, not only in Congress, but across the country who believe that former President Trump is being treated differently. Of course, they point to the raid, and there have been recent articles saying that there was a disagreement within DOJ about whether to carry out that raid. The FBI disagreed with DOJ. Ultimately, DOJ overruled the FBI. How do you respond to that? So a, a couple things, uh, and you're going to laugh when I make my first point. The first thing is that it was not a raid. It was a court authorized search. That's the first thing. Uh, and the second thing, I, I want to be careful what I say here because this is an ongoing criminal investigation. I will say generally, it is not uncommon for investigators and prosecutors to to uh, have uh, candid conversations in the course of any investigation. I think what is important is the outcome of those conversations, that the, that, that the way forward is consistent with how similar prior cases have been uh, treated. And that, again, goes back to this rule of law uh, point that Merrick Garland made so uh, central to his uh, testimony today. I will say, generally speaking, Jeff, uh, this is one of my great frustrations with my job running communications at the Justice Department over the last two years. There is often a delta, uh, a gap, if you will, between what the Justice Department is doing and what the public thinks the Justice Department is doing. And I'll give you an example on green on I, items, areas, um, matters related to a grand jury. If you, Jeff Pegues, came to me when I was in my role at DOJ and you said, uh, Coley, I am going to, we are hearing that X person is going to appear in front of a federal grand jury. Um, here's what he or she is going to talk about. I cannot, in my role, according to DOJ rules, I cannot even give you a wink or a nod one way or another on that. 
Um, I cannot even, according to DOJ rules, I cannot even confirm the existence of a federal grand jury. And so if a reporter is wrong or doesn't have nuance right, if that reporter goes out and reports that, I am not allowed to correct the record. And so what happens is that noise fills this gap. And some of the noise is filled by uh, smart people, credentialed people who used to work at DOJ, but perhaps may not know uh, all of the things that uh, we uh, knew inside the Justice Department. Some of the gap is filled by people on the right wing who still refuse um, to acknowledge that the uh, 2020 election was fair. Um, and then uh, some people um, fill the fill the gap. I think the third group, I would say, are people who are just who just want to see accountability um, and they want to make sure that whatever happens in the January 6th investigation, that everyone and anyone who was criminally responsible for the uh, for the uh, events leading up into the attack on the Capitol are held accountable. And uh, I'm more sympathetic to that group. And this is one of the reasons, uh, one of the uh, last bits of advice I gave to the Attorney General, Jeff, before I left, was that it is very important uh, for him to uh, to give more di uh, direct uh, interviews, um, speak in longer formats uh, to the American people. You don't have to get into uh, details about the nuance of criminal investigations, but it is important for people to uh, see uh, to, to, to see your, to hear from you how you are approaching these investigations. So I hope that over the next several weeks, uh, the Justice Department, the Attorney General will decide to give at least his third. He's only done two sit down interviews, uh, but I hope uh, soon he will uh, have another opportunity to speak directly to the American people. The other thing, if I might add, Jeff, if there's time, I would, I think there is an opportunity here for the attorney general to uh, speak more about his policy agenda. Throughout today's Senate Judiciary Committee oversight hearing, there was a lot of talk, talk for instance, on policy stuff, on antitrust matters. Antitrust is an issue, is an area that the attorney general uh, knows a lot about. Going back to his college um, uh, college thesis, he wrote about um, antitrust and competition policy. And uh, that is an opportunity. The attorney general hasn't spoke about uh, antitrust matters um, in a lengthy way, in a substantive way, in a while. And I, so I hope that uh, that's another thing that I hope the department does in, in coming coming weeks. He, he listen. He he is not a soundbite machine, which in some cases that's good. That's good. Um, but it's also I tell people who who ask me about him. I say you know think about who he is and where he came from. He was a judge. He was a judge. How do you think being a judge shaped, has shaped his time at the Department of Justice? 
So he's not only a judge, he was on the bench for 24 years. This is his uh, fourth tour of duty at the Justice Department, though. And people forget that, that he was a special assistant to uh, Attorney General Cibaletti after uh, the um, Watergate um, um, incident. He uh, also was a, a prosecutor um, in the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, right here in the District of Columbia. He was also the PAYDAG. Um, you know well um, the role that he played in securing the convictions of uh, the perpetrators of the awful bombing in Oklahoma City. So it's not just him being a judge for 24 years. All of us, we bring our whole selves, our whole selves to every job that we have. And so I think um, his varied experiences from being at the Justice Department um, three prior times uh, to being in private practice for a short time, to also his years as a judge informs his approach. My hope is that uh, in coming weeks, he will spend more time communicating with the American people directly. And I will tell you this uh, story, Jeff, as, as we begin to wind down. After the last interview he, he, he did, it was in July of last year, he sat with uh, Lester Holt uh, and NBC. And after NBC, to their credit, at, uh, aired about seven and a half minutes of that interview in their nightly news broadcast. And you know, as a network guy, seven and a half minutes in nightly news, evening news, that is virtually unheard of not nowadays. Uh, my mother, who has been a critic of the department's approach in this January 6th investigation. She saw that interview and she told me afterwards, she says, Mary Garland is like a quiet storm. He's the type of person that you don't want to play around with. And I told him that story. And my hope is that he uh, takes that lesson to heart and that he uh, again, uh, begins to speak more directly to the American people at this important moment in American history. You know, I was thinking also, you said that was your mom who was who was critical of the January 6th prosecutions. You know, it's, it's a it's a tough town when, you know, you can't even please your family members. Man, let me tell you, I, so I know I said my prior story is going to be my last one, but let me tell you. So I went home uh, down to a small town, North Carolina. Uh, last July, this is before the special counsel appointments. I went home. I just needed to get away, Jeff, from the inside the beltway chatter. Uh, I just needed a break. So I drove down to North Carolina. I had not been in the house uh, for five minutes before my mother told me. She says, I just wish your man would go ahead and do what he needs to do. And you're like, OK, I'm leaving. I'm out. And I'm knocking my head against the wall. Ma, not you too. Oh my goodness. Can I just like get some peace and quiet? But uh, but this is this is there 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 are a lot of people across the country who care a lot about what the Justice Department is doing. And there's a way to thread the needle to um, to protect the uh, sanctity of investigation, certainly before period, before anyone is charged, if they are ever charged, uh, but also keep the American people informed about, about the process and the integrity of the process that you uh, have put in place to ensure that the rule of law 
and equal justice under law is corollary, continues to be um, carried forth throughout the department and certainly with regard to its investigations. And we'll make that the final word. Anthony Coley, thanks for your time. All right, Jeff. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. As we enter National Reading Month this March, a recent study from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, or NAEP, shows what is a disturbing trend of fourth grade and eighth grade students across the country. Researchers discovered that the average reading scores drop significantly. Average fourth grade reading skills were the lowest that they have been since 2005, and only 33% of those students were reading at the expected fourth grade levels. A new documentary produced by former Reading Rainbow host LeVar Burton and directed by Emmy Award winner Jenny McKenzie says that a profound change in the way that teachers are forced to teach reading is responsible for the dramatic drop-off in children's literacy. We're going to hear from them in a minute, but first we spoke with Angie Cherubek, a nationally recognized leader in education and the founder and executive director of the Barr Center. We asked her for her analysis of the cause of the decline in reading scores. I was an educator in a school, and we had had five years running that half the students had failed a class. And I really felt strongly it was not my colleagues. They were incredibly strong. And it wasn't the students. Students were incredibly talented. So I'm like, this is a system realignment that we need to have. But in terms of context, this was the same time that a lot of new approaches were being rolled out, in particular around reading, new method of reading. And I will tell you, I did not feel comfortable with this new approach and was assured that something magical was going to happen behind a curtain, which we all know is not the case anymore. The other piece that was interesting, it was under President Bush and Margaret Spellings that they were calling for kind of a new commitment to data and accountability which set the stage for the U.S. Department of Education's Investing in Innovation, I3 work under President Obama. I3 was really a call out to say, were there things working in the field that we could put to the most rigorous research and be able to then get it to more communities? So when I started BAR, I always had an external evaluator be capturing what's occurring because I just feel so strongly that we have to treat educators as professionals and respect them and ensure anything we ask them to do, we know is going to be effective. We cannot waste their time, let alone resources. So we were the first and only model to go through all three levels of this competition, doing more and more research in more and more communities to be able to say with confidence, if you have this model come to your school, students and staff will do better. So the NAEP results, I think, were a really big wake-up call or a confirmation of our concerns in terms of how the students are doing. So the first piece is I think it's important to always embrace the data versus try to explain away the data. And I think what we're recognizing is that students are not at the proficiency level. They don't have the skills that we know we need to have them possess to be able to be successful. We have not been teaching reading in a science-based way. We've been asking our educators to adopt practices that we don't know if they're effective or not, and some have turned out to be harmful. It's a huge issue, so I'm so pleased that the, the reading issues have now have a broad awareness. But this idea of having evidence-based practices getting to our educators, we have to prioritize it. We first need to make sure that people are doing their due diligence to do the research on their approach to ensure that it's going to be 
um, effective before rolling it out. And then if we become aware of um, concerns, we need to make sure that we are making those changes prior to continuing to have the practices continue. I think the other thing that's really important is there are times when the practice of um, doing research becomes more of an academic practice versus how it actually impacts the field. And I think that's a really critical conversation that needs to be occurring right now. So for example, we've done 20 years of, of research and we need to get this to schools and not have this just be a um, ivory tower conversation to be like, this you know, is effective and we'll write journal articles. That's important. But how do we have that evidence and research also become part of the, the practices that our students and our staff are experiencing. LeVar Burton and Jenny McKenzie joined Gail King, Tony DeCopel, and Nate Burleson of CBS Mornings to discuss their new documentary, The Right to Read. The Right to Read follows an activist, a first grade teacher, and two families in their fight to teach their students and children to read. Kareem Weaver, the NAACP activist in Oakland, argues that literacy is one of the great civil rights issues of our time. Illiteracy is the pipeline to prison. It's also the pipeline to homelessness. It's the pipeline to unemployment and depression. And there are publishing companies that sell popular curriculum that do not teach our children to read, making millions of dollars. From the day I set foot in Oakland, I realized that everything starts with literacy. Everything starts with reading. Science, math, history, you name it. If you can't read, you can't access anything else. LeVar Burton, former host of Reading Rainbow, is one of the movie's executive producers. He knows a thing or two about reading. He is here with the director, the great Jenny McKenzie, who is also behind movies like Kick Like a Girl and the Emmy-winning Quiet Heroes. We welcome you both to the table. Thanks, Jenny. This documentary, guys, is so good, and I learned so much watching it. I find it so hard to believe in 2023, kids who are going to school, yes. LeVar, still can't read. That's true. Why is that? How we, is that possible? We have failed them in America, in our school systems. We have, we have failed them by not giving them evidence-based reading instruction. What we, does that mean? Well, is we it went the way on, they're being taught? Yes. We went on a tangent with whole language learning, which is to say you, you, you teach children to sort of memorize, mm -hmm. right, pictures mm -hmm. uh, and, and divine meaning from, from what they see on the page in terms of the images, not the letters. Yes. Phonics got abandoned. And, yes. and, and everything went downhill from there. I know, Jenny, there's a very powerful scene in the documentary where you see this little girl reading. And what she's doing is translating the pictures. When they showed her the words, she could not read. She could not read them. Exactly, Gail. It's, we naturally learn to speak, but yes. reading is a complicated task. And the brain isn't naturally wired to learn how to read. So we have to learn with systematic, explicit instruction. It's great to expose kids to books, yeah. but it's not the same as teaching them how to read. So Jenny, there are companies that are making money off of programs that are not actually teaching kids how to read. How did that happen? I think it happened because we have truly prioritized profits and politics over outcomes for our children. So it's shocking. I mean, when we think that 37% of children in this country are reading below a proficient level, uh, sorry, below basic, Which not means, proficient. It means they can't read. It, can't read. it truly yeah. does, Tony. It, it means they cannot read. And to create a third of our children who are illiterate 
is catastrophic. I mean, it's something we should all be screaming about. Yes. It's a compound problem. It is. Well, Absolutely. LeVar, in the documentary, we meet a first grade teacher who understands this problem and goes against <laughs> her district's own curriculum to devise a plan that works. She's a hero. And like many teachers, they mm -hmm. are really caught in a bind. They want to do the best they can for our children, but they are constrained by school districts and public policy, and we just we have to do better. It affects more kids of color. Why, guys? <sighs> because... I know, because, big sigh. Yeah. yeah, because our kids get less always, especially when it comes to education. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in this country, there is a certain population who can afford that additional extra instruction, tutors yeah. and the like. Uh, most low-income people, not all yes. low-income people, yeah. just can't afford that luxury. But you both say this is fixable. Very much so. It it's is. Fixable and not hard to fix. We have the research, we have the data, and we need to take that research and data and implement it into practice. I mean, what does that think mean? About we have the research data. What, what specifically needs to be done? What needs to be done, Gail, is we have to have uh, evidence-based research curriculum for kids to learn to read that is tested for kids across all demographics. I mean, leaving children who are poor and children who are black and brown behind is not a new problem. Mm -hmm. We have been facing these kind of inequality issues for years. Mm -hmm. So we have to test reading instruction with all kids across the country. It's all because of the way the kids are taught. Yeah, I'm flipping around on my <laughs> Absolutely. Papers here because I have to say here that some of the nation's uh, literacy program leaders, the most popular the programs, and we're not naming them for, for uh, on purpose, uh, they say that they stand by their methods and that their work is being mischaracterized. Yeah, well, that's not true. Respond. That's, that, that's not true. Uh, the work is not being mischaracterized. They're lying to protect their bottom line. This is America. You say it's about money. It is, in part. Not everything is about money, but it is a big part of this equation. But how are schools and teachers allowed to get away with it? You said literacy starts at home with parents, but really it's, you said it really falls on the schools, does it not? I think it definitely falls on leaders and policymakers, yeah. but change has to begin with us. Mm -hmm. And I think right now we are a part of a movement that is being talked about, which mm -hmm. is really the early literacy crisis. And people need to ask questions. They need to talk to their district leaders. They need to talk to their principals and say, how are you teaching yeah. reading That's what parents should school. ask. That's Absolutely. the question parents should Absolutely. ask. How are you yeah. teaching my child how to read? Mm -hmm. yeah. How are you teaching? Okay, so Phyllis in. Tell us, how did this story develop? On Friday, February 24th, we got word from the Montgomery County DA's office, uh, Montgomery County outside Philadelphia, that there had been two people treated for fentanyl overdoses. Both of them uh, are described as uh, reliable, believable, uh, credible, uh, that they did not ingest anything with fentanyl, but they did take uh, Delta-8 THC gummies uh, that they had bought uh, you know, without a prescription, without a medical marijuana card, uh, or not from a dispensary, uh, more over the counter that they had eaten, uh, those gummies, uh, and then had the symptoms that prompted them to reach out to, uh, you know, doctor or healthcare provider, uh, out of concerns for their health. Uh, and the DA's office said that they collected, uh, several different, uh, edible, uh, Delta eight THC, 
gummies and edible products from the stores where, where these had been purchased uh, and then also other stores and used what's called an ion scan 600, which is uh, used by the National Guard. It's used at airports and other places. Uh, and uh, according to the DA's office, uh, they when they tested these these edibles in question, uh, they found uh, not only fentanyl, but they also detected heroin, meth, as, meth, meth extracts and cocaine extracts. And so the next day they, they made it clear like, hey, this is really early in the investigation. There's a lot of questions we don't have answered right now, but we just want to put out the alert now out of concern that there may be fentanyl in these edibles and you know, out of concern for public safety, for public health. We want to warn everybody, be careful what you're taking, be careful what you're eating. If you have, uh, they name specific brands. If you have any of these specific brands uh, to please uh, don't eat them uh, and, and don't let anyone you know eat them. Is the concern that this is more widespread than just what's happening in Philadelphia or outside Philadelphia and Pennsylvania? Is is there a concern that this is a, a bigger problem than just what was discovered recently? B- before we get to that, they, they came out on Monday and said that they did lab tests over the weekend and that the products that, that tested positive with that really sensitive uh, ion scan 600 it did not meet a lab's threshold of detection. So it didn't alert the lab to the presence of those drugs. So it calls into question a little bit if that very sensitive instrument is picking it up, but a test at a lab with uh, a higher level of detection isn't picking them up. Is that the issue? But they do say that there is a concern of cross-contamination in the making and or packaging of the edibles. And what is, is sort of a focus now is this Delta 8 THC, which is derived from hemp through a a fairly complicated process, much more complicated than typical, you know, marijuana getting THC from a typical marijuana plant. It's the hemp plant, which, you know, for years has been, you know, it doesn't have the the effects that THC, you know, the hallucinogenic or other kind of mind altering effects that that typical marijuana has. But they figured out a way to kind of do that. And it's it's you know, if you look at the FDA's website, they kind of talk about, you know, there's harsh chemicals that are used. A lot of these products are made with uh, the Delta 8 THC that's imported and not necessarily done in the country. So there's really no regulation over it. So that's kind of where the concern of, you know, is this more widespread? How widespread is it? Right now, they can't even really put their finger on, you know, where their packages that were tampered with, you know, like Tylenol several decades ago, whenever it was, you know, when, when there were Tylenol products that were, were tampered with after production, after packaging, you know, did something like that happen? So there, there are still a lot of questions, but, but it definitely is a concern of these products aren't really regulated and the, the process of, of how they're made isn't really understood or regulated. So there's a concern of, you know, what, what are you getting when, when you buy one of these products? Uh, and to make it clear, they, they tested other products that, that didn't, even with the, the, with the very sensitive equipment, the instrument that they were using, uh, they tested some and, and they didn't find any of these other, you know, fentanyl or any, anything else uh, showing up. So uh, it, it's not to say that all of these products are bad, but there are concerns over some of them. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. Don't forget to check your local listings to see when ACF airs in your community. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Changed Forever. 
the Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.